0: Well I wonder what gets you wound up What gets under your skin If you were to finish the sentence The thing that pushes my buttons is What comes to mind Let me tell you a story of um, someone or a situation that wound me up we might call it the nearly tragic story, the almost tragic story of Ron. I've shared about Ron, my elderly friend in an aged care home, uh, before. Uh, Ron very clearly came to Christ afresh, at least at the end of his life. Uh, but he told me, um, as he'd come to church often, Look, I'm, I'm sorry for the clothes I'm wearing. Is it okay? Can I come in? Can I come into church? I'd say, it's fine, Ron. He was coming from the aged care home, and he often had tracksuit pants and and Velcro uh, joggers on, and he just felt he was underdressed. I'd say, Ron, it doesn't matter what you wear. Please, you're so welcome. Come in. As I got to know Ron better, um, he let me know why he was feeling this way when he came to church. He said, I was the youngest of three boys, and my mum used to bring me to church. The other two didn't want to go, and my dad didn't go. And I went along happily enough. Um, I was wearing my best clothes Sunday by Sunday, but we were from a poor farming family. And the minister at church regularly would say to me, look, why are you wearing that? You've got a tear here or you've got a stain there. And he'd pull me up for the clothes I was wearing. He stopped going a little while later with his mum and didn't return to church again until he was in his 90s when he'd moved next door to, to the church. When I heard this story, I was so angry that that could have happened, that this minister of all people would shut this boy who became a father and a grandfather out of heaven, that he effectively sent this boy away from God and the church by adding a requirement that God does not have. You've got to dress up for God, really? Really? And it brought almost 80 years of distance from God for on. He almost took this misunderstanding of God to the grave, that God won't accept Him. This very concern is what really churned Jesus up as well, distorting the precious news, this most important news of how to become friends with God, how to enter his kingdom. Most of chapter 23 of Matthew, for example, you see Jesus wound up, and a lot of it's about this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. The kingdom of heaven, the eternal place where humanity is meant to be with God, is shut by the religious leaders. And so what matters most for the Christian church well, if you're following in your outline, point one, the wonderful gospel of Jesus matters most and having clarity about the gospel, because it saves us. It opens the door to the kingdom. The gospel connects us with Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Distort the gospel and souls miss heaven. Distort the gospel and fruitful lives will be unlived. Distort the gospel, and churches and even whole denominations will lose their way. And so, gospel clarity in verses 1 to 18. The numbering is wrong in in the handout I, I erred there. But gospel clarity, verses 1 to 18, firstly. Look with me at verses 1 to 5 to see the problem. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. They're putting salvation at stake here. And verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Cannot be saved? Must follow the Jewish practice of circumcising boys and men? Must adopt Israelite law? That's right, they want to say to the Roman, and the Egyptian and the Asian Christian. You've accepted the Jewish Messiah, great, and now you need to finish the process by taking up our covenant sign of circumcision and come under Moses' law. They say you cannot be saved without Judaism. It's Jesus, yes, but Jesus plus Judaism. Can you imagine how impractical that would be, looking back now 2,000 years? This is much more than demanding Ron to get some new clothes. Imagine if we had to travel vast distances to sacrifice offerings in Jerusalem for our sin, to try to live by Jewish land laws and and sacrifice laws from Sydney. It was a massive, unnecessary obstacle to accept the free forgiveness of Christ. It failed to see that Christ had fulfilled the law for a new era of God's kingdom that opened up to all nations, It failed to recognize the newness of this church age and God's plan, that by the Spirit and through the apostles' writings, he would guide the international Christian church. How then is a person saved? Well, it's a life and death question, isn't it? A matter of eternal life or eternal destruction. And so this debate happening in Acts 15 is a really important debate and one the church had to win Victory was critical here, and God ensured the church got it right at this time. From the rest of this time, if you remember the chapters before, Gentiles have been coming in, but we need to be clear. What do they need to do from here, and can the gospel now freely spread to all nations? This question of how to be saved, to keep the gospel at the centre... It's important for us to keep this on, on, on our horizons. You notice sometimes children's Bibles, for example, we, we might give them to the kids, but they teach moralism instead of the gospel so often. Uh, be a good little boy or good little girl. Sunday school stories can go the same way, just moralism instead of this gospel that James was speaking about in the kids' talks. Missionaries who go to far-flung lands but end up teaching about character development instead of the gospel in home groups rather than the bible or church schools that offer ethics instead of the gospel these things should get under our skin because the gospel saves and only the gospel saves Uh, i grew up with three brothers and if we successfully annoyed one another one of us would say to the other gets him phased you know got under your skin it's not something i'd recommend for harmonious family relationships and but something we'd say, and I notice I asked someone younger than me, what do you say these days when you get someone annoyed? And they say, oh, we say triggered. I've got you triggered, or he's triggered. Again, I don't recommend this this morning, but Peter and Paul are rightly triggered. They're phased by what's going on. They're, they're vexed. They're very concerned. Let's read from verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And I take it this is following Galatians 2 where Peter made the same mistake and he's now learned the lesson. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Cornelius we saw a few weeks ago. God who knows the heart and here heart is going to be emphasized more than nationality. God who knows the heart or well literally God the heart knower "...showed that he accepted them by giving this Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us Jews and them Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God?" This, this word, testing, the same word that was used of Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, "...testing God's patience by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear." And in this brilliant clarity of verse 11, no, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Wonderful, isn't it, that salvation can be used in the past tense. We can be saved. We are saved. Past, present, future. Notice the word ordering, too, to emphasize that not even Jews are saved by the law. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Grace alone saves us, the Jews. Grace alone saves them, the Gentiles. We're all in this grace of Jesus' boat together. And it's a new Christian boat. It's not a Jewish boat. Peter knew through his own pathetic failures that he lamented that his works were unworthy of the righteousness and the standards of God. Paul likewise knew that he wasn't saved by his merits of circumcision and law-keeping. Paul knew that he was saved wholly by Jesus. He was saved by Jesus while killing Christians, to make that very clear. Jews needed to be saved, verse 11, through the grace, through the undeserved kindness of the Lord Jesus. That's a politically incorrect message, isn't it? To say that a Jew still needs saving... It was politically incorrect then and now. But it's one our Jewish friends still desperately need to hear. There is no salvation outside Jesus of Nazareth, crucified for sinners. Yes, Jesus was the King of the Jews. But he was the King of the Jews so that he could show the whole world he is the King of all nations. Now, it's not a great analogy, but you don't have to be become British or even put on a British accent to call Queen Elizabeth your queen. And so too, Jesus is the world's king, not accessed via a third culture or a second culture, a cultural detour, but he's the creator of every nation who gives direct access to every nation. That's why Christian rituals, I think, are so simple compared to the Jewish Formulas and and the Jewish prescriptions in the law. The Christian principles are so simple and generic and repeatable and accessible all over the world. The Passover festival in the Old Testament in Jerusalem is now replaced by a simple Lord's Supper, a meal together wherever Christians find themselves with the most basic elements of bread and wine or juice. And God replaces the cultural and unpleasant rite that was meant to distinguish Israel from the rest of the nations, he replaces that with water baptism, which symbolises our belonging not to Judaism but to a new a church community. Baptism is as accessible as water is. Now, In Mongolia, water wasn't always easy to find, and particularly for our church that liked to do immersion baptism, not just sprinkling. Uh, We had to wait for the rivers to melt, and so baptisms would normally happen in summer. I didn't ask around, but I imagine all the Mongolians would have preferred even a cold water baptism than circumcision. God had something better for the nations, and there needed to be no mistake about it, no going back, a way that would, I think this symbol's wonderful too, it includes fully both male and female, But no going back to Judaism. It was for a time. No going back to a temple with a curtain God himself had torn. And a temple which in 20 years' time was going to be completely destroyed to remove that temptation. So Peter and then Paul and Barnabas now in verse 12, Uh, Peter, Paul and Barnabas and, and James now in verse 12 shows that the scriptures actually predicted all of these things. It's not only current affairs. Verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written from Amos chapter 9, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, the tent that fell with Nebuchadnezzar, sacking Jerusalem in 586 BC and and really ruining the Davidic dynasty. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. Verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, all the nations who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago, way back even to Abram, the Gentile, who was chosen to bless all nations. And so because of this gathering, this Jerusalem Council, the vital clarity developed that has served the world's churches ever since. Now, if you know some church history, you know that many churches over the centuries have missed this. Some still today insist that it is Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus seven sacraments offered by a priest. Some insist on pilgrimages, rosary beads or icons. Come to Jesus via Mary. Some say you need Jesus plus spiritual experiences or the gift of tongues or big donations to the church. Some say it's Jesus plus the Ten Commandments, picking up your act as a Christian, fulfilling your duty as a church member in order to be assured that you're saved. No, it is Jesus who saves. Jesus' sheer grace. Jesus plus nothing. Isn't that wonderful? All of us can offer nothing. We believe, verse 11, that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Whatever country you're from, Whatever language you speak, whatever your track record, all you need to do is repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. That's the wonderful news. So simple and yet so powerful for the world's salvation. We are those whose home is in heaven because of this simple, free gospel. And so we Christians, whether we're youth leaders, home group leaders, Christians, salt and light in our world, we are also gospel stewards. And we protect the gospel, we steward the gospel by sharing it. Now, I think what winds us up actually says a lot about us. On College Street here, I find that a lot of people get wound up, really wound up, wound up enough to scream obscenities out the window if the car in front of them is slowing them down a little bit perhaps driving slower than they'd like. Um, The gospel frees us from petty things that get under our skin. Some get wound up by politics at the moment, grocery prices or climate policy. Not bad things to have concerns about, but where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. A heartbeat for the kingdom is the one we're after, if you remember from Acts chapter 1. That he's come, he's saving, he's returning. The kingdom heartbeat, he's come, he's saving, he's returning. And so let's get excited about the kingdom. Let's get disturbed about worthy things, about gospel things. And so that's the first and most important point from this passage. Gospel clarity. And from gospel clarity will come point two, gospel flexibility. When the gospel matters much, other things matter less. And we can be much more flexible in our service of our king. We have gospel flexibility to be culturally generous, verses 19 to 35. Now, the Jewish world and the Gentile world were very different. The Old Testament intended for them to be different. But just like a suspension bridge, its strength comes from its flexibility and its ability to move. So too, the Jews and Gentiles need some kindness and some flexibility to better get along. Verse 19 It's my judgment, therefore, says James, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They don't need to follow the law, but, verse 20, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. This isn't meant to be a new set of laws for the church forever but the council's instruction, their conviction, or in the words of verse 29, you will do well to avoid these things. It's important advice. It will help Jews and Gentiles get along in the same house and at the same table over the same meal. We expect this in multicultural Australia, this kind of difference between cultures. If you were to visit a Mongolian church, I would advise you, Show a more obvious respect for people older than you. Don't place your Bible ever on the floor. Don't shake hands with people unless you've taken your gloves off. Be ready to eat very fatty food, fatty meals and salty tea. And always receive it with your right hand or both hands. But aren't I free of such rules as a Christian? Well, yes, but the gospel leads us to love one another and avoid things that prevent fellowship. Uh, prevent fellowship if we can and so what was normal for the gentiles who linked pagan temple life with their food supply was literally hard for the jews to swallow and many sexual relationships like polygamy or marriage to a relative that were permitted in gentile culture were ruled out by leviticus law and so I take it here, the command is generously broad to avoid sexual immorality. It doesn't say what kind of behavior, but avoid things that are going to be offensive, things you know to be wrong. This gracious flexibility leads to the church being glad and encouraged, verse 31. "The believers are all strengthened," verse 32, and there is unity and blessing and God with, uh, goodwill as a result in verse 33. With gospel clarity comes this wonderful flexibility for Christians to get along with each other and we can get the most important things right. Now, we have three congregations here at DPC, nine, 1030 and five. And so I, I'm offering today different congregations, different reflections on how I think each congregation might be have this gospel flexibility, how we can have this gospel clarity. It's just my own opinion, forgive me if I'm off the mark, but here is how I see things, 10.30. It sometimes seems to me as a newcomer that 10.30's rear vision mirror can seem very big and almost get in the way of, of what's going on now and what's ahead of us. Uh, when I say the past, it can be three years, five years, ten years. Um, and there's a rich history and we can be thankful for the things in our past. Um, a core of strong relationships. But I think it can feel tricky for newcomers to feel in or part of an in crowd. I've been conscious of newcomers being waited to be invited into friendship groups or a meal. Um, And I I think it takes grace to keep showing up and to keep presenting ourselves in what really is an ever-fresh church, isn't it? Uh, It's a sign of our health, I think, that we always have this freshness coming in. It's right, I think, to grieve some of the things from the past as well and friendships that are no longer here. But if we are too past-oriented at our core, we might miss the opportunities and people staring us in the face. And friends we might enjoy today and friendships ready to be built. That we see yesterday as golden days and today as golden days and tomorrow as golden days as well. One elder challenged me in saying, I think we're pretty friendly at DPC. I hear we're pretty friendly to newcomers. But we want to be more than friendly, he said. We want to be friends and actually go that next step of, of building relationships with each other. Gospel clarity will help with that. Gospel flexibility will bring that. And flexibility, secondly, in verses 36 to 41, leads us to expect differences of opinion and strategy. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Great plan, let's strengthen those churches. But the excitement doesn't last long as they develop different ideas about the trip. Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, I take the one who wrote Mark's gospel, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in the work. We see back in chapter 13, verse 13, for some reason John Mark decided to pull out of Paul and Barnabas's ministry tour. Paul and Barnabas pressed on. They kept preaching the gospel. They went from town to town, and they were persecuted for it, sometimes heavily. John Mark dodged all of those terrible bullets. And Paul thinks it's best not to take John Mark again on the next trip. But Barnabas, bless him, thinks it important, I guess, to give John Mark another chance. Christian living involves countless choices where there's freedom, and we don't have a word from God about what we are to do on less important matters. But I find it amazing that such a tight-knit ministry group that we've seen operating together in recent chapters just can't see eye-to-eye enough to get on and keep working together. Later, Paul will speak both warmly of both Barnabas and John Mark, but now they operate separately. It's a bit sad, but I, I'm glad Luke records it for us. Just after the highs of this victory comes this separation of ministry. Yes, unity in the gospel is essential, but the church will have and even should have differences when it comes to strategy and personnel and emphases. And so we have Anglican churches and Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and each with their own colleges and we have different ministry priorities and churches up the road and down the road. We might have choices that disappoint us. Um, I might not make decisions you like and, and we might make decisions we don't like. Well, Paul says, when the gospel is preached, I rejoice. And he rejoices when the gospel is preached even by those trying to hurt him in Philippians I haven't been around very long but perhaps long enough to be disenchanted by many Christian organisations and groups colleges and denominations and mission agencies and prominent Christians, get to know any group of Christians well enough and you'll learn their problems each one doing what is right in their own eyes and I can't expect anything different of myself or of our own church and so it's sobering I'm a pastor made of dust, and my greatest strength is Christ. And we're a church family where we have, have issues. We have a patchy history. We've had differing opinions over some painful decisions over the years. We're limited in our prayer, prayerfulness, and we could do with a whole lot more fruit of the Spirit. So this passage is a tad disappointing, but then I think perhaps, perhaps that's life. In our fallen world, as we we stumble along as Christians, such is church life. And if recognising this makes us a little more humble, a little more patient with one another, a little more realistic, that you don't have to agree with me on everything and I with you, then I think that's helpful. And it's naive and even destructive to expect others to see things our way. If we have gospel clarity and the humble love it brings will be less upset by Christian differences. And lastly, the gospel makes us flexible to become all things to all people in order to save some. I couldn't leave these last five verses out. At the start of chapter 15, we saw the big decision that circumcision isn't necessary. But once that is clearly and formally established, for the sake of reaching out to Jews, Paul has Timothy circumcised. It's amazing, isn't it, the length that Christians will go to, not here to enter God's kingdom, but for God's kingdom. Some will die as martyrs in South America. Some will learn foreign languages to share Jesus. Some home groups will divide to make space for newcomers to join. Some invite friends on their holidays. Some become increasingly hospitable as life goes on, letting more people into their lives. In big and little choices, DPC, let's become what will help others come to Jesus. May we be a church with great gospel clarity and great gospel flexibility. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for that great news made so clear to us in this church by faithful men and women who have served over the years. We thank you for the gospel clarity that has come through our lives in other, other ways too, other churches, other people, grandparents, parents, friends. We thank you for that precious gospel that it's made its way to our ears. And we thank you that we as a church want to, to hold that gospel centrally. Thank you for our elders and, and leaders of home groups and others who recognize the gospel's importance. And we pray that out of that gospel clarity will come much flexibility. Help us to truly love you, to truly love those you've placed around us. Help us to give thanks to you for the past, but also to look before us at the opportunities ahead of us. And Father, we do pray for your Spirit's help uh, as we come out of COVID, as things aren't yet returned to normal. Help us to be patient. Help us to look for opportunities in the now. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.